We're in Ephesians 2. We're going through the book of Ephesians, and we're in about two months in. I think we have maybe three months to go. And we're in Ephesians 2, and Ephesians 2 is double good news. It's good news first for those who are wondering whether the Christian faith or the Bible has anything redemptive to say to a racially fractured, fraught, and frustrated world. And it's good news, second, for those who are currently working for some sort of racial or ethnic reconciliation or justice or peace or unity, and they're becoming disheartened by what feels like fruitless efforts and very slow change. So Ephesians 2 is good news for those that need to be convinced and for those that are disheartened. And Paul, in the second half of the chapter, talks about how God's grace comes to us and it brings reconciliation and inclusion where there was once alienation between different people groups. Now, as you know, last week we were in the first half of chapter 2, and there Paul talked about vertical reconciliation, that all human beings, respective of their, irrespective of their race or their ethnicity or their culture, are alienated from God by sin and in need of his redeeming grace to them. And so when you take Ephesians 2 as a whole, you see that according to Paul, there are two dynamics to the gospel. There's a vertical dynamic and there's a horizontal dynamic. Grace comes and redeems us spiritually and grace comes and reconciles us socially to one another. And grace does both all the time. And I think it's one of the ways in which uh, we as a church can fall off the wagon on one side or the other is when we tend to emphasize one of these dynamics to the exclusion of the other. So one way to do this is, is to focus on the first half and say, the gospel is all about God reconciling me to himself and the way in which he draws me into a loving relationship, into a personal relationship, and how he's forming me into the image of Christ. But then to forget about the second half where he's talking about the social dimensions of the gospel involved. Now, another way to fall off the court is to go the uh, go out, fall off the cart is to go the other direction. It's to see the social dynamics of the gospel and to see the radical implications of those, and to work for a whole bunch of like social justice and unity and reconciliation initiatives, but to forget the vertical aspect that God calls us to this repentance, to this forgiveness, to this communion with Him at the deepest and most personal level. And so Paul says both of these things are at the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In both ways, the gospel seeks to bring peace and unity where there is alienation and hostility. So how is it that Ephesians 2 is good news for those who have wondered if the Christian faith has anything redemptive to say to a racially fractured world? Now, I think it's understandable to some extent why people would wonder this for a couple reasons. Like, on the one hand, the church doesn't exactly have a great track record with racism. And that's true in America, and that's true in other countries as well. It's true in Canada, it's true in the UK, you name it. Historically, the church has played a significant role of reinforcing and preserving a lot of racial chasms and biases. And in our country, I think one of the most accessible books, if you want to read up on this, uh, it's, it's not easy to read, but it's, it's helpful to read, is by a man named Jamar Tisby. He did an MDiv at Reformed Theological Seminary and then a, a PhD in um, church history. And he wrote this book called The Color of Compromise, The Truth About the American Church's Complicity in Racism. And one of the things that really hit home for me in that book in particular as an ordained Anglican priest, 
I kind of signed my name onto the, the Anglican <laughs> uh, ballot for the, for the rest of my life. Is He tells a story in there, and I've heard this from other authors as well, that the creation of the first historically black denomination in America was actually the result of an Episcopal church in the late 18th century, physically removing two black men who were praying in the whites-only section and were not willing to get up and leave when asked to do so until they had finished their prayer. Historically speaking, in some way, the black church in America is in part the creation of the white church in America. So on the one hand, you could see why people would wonder. It's not like the church has a great track record. And yet on the other hand, some parts of the church are not too keen to talk about race and ethnicity. Because honestly, like myself, I feel totally ill-equipped to do it. Uncomfortable. Some feel unsafe. And others, um, it's more like, can't we just focus on Jesus in the Bible and not talk about all these divisive things? And I kind of get where that's coming from, but part of the implication underneath that is that things like race and ethnicity and justice are not issues that Jesus and the Bible talk about. And then there's a conspicuous silence. I think it was Martin Luther King Jr. who said, in the end, we will remember not the words of our enemies, but the silence of our friends. So I think it's understandable why some people would wonder if the Christian faith has anything redemptive to say to these aspects of our humanity and our culture, given that there's this ugly history and deafening silence. It was Billy Graham who said at the end of his public ministry, he said this, and quote, this is Billy Graham. He said, racial and ethnic hostility is the foremost social problem facing our world today. Our world seems caught up in a tidal wave of tension. And it's our own bishop who's kind of like our head shepherd. He's the shepherd over me and all the other shepherds. And the one who planted this church, he echoes his words. And he said just a number of months ago, I believe that race and racism may be the most pressing social issue of our time. And he said, that's saying a lot amidst a pandemic, political strife, and like relational and emotional fallout everywhere you look. He said, many long Unresolved problems of racism are constantly before us, but there's hope here. He said, these are opportunities for ministry, and they call for our loving attention, end quote. And so in a world that's becoming like increasingly global and multi-ethnic, I mean, Ephesians 2 is good news for us. It gives us, I think, on the one hand, the courage to name our history accurately and to not shy away from that. And second, it gives us the resources to say something healing, to say something redemptive. Look at verses 11 and 12 with me. Paul says, Therefore, remember that at one time, you who were Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcision by those who were called the circumcision, so this is the Jews calling the Gentiles this, remember that at that time you were separated from Christ, excluded from the citizenship in Israel. Foreigners to the covenants of promise without hope and without God in the world. In other words, Paul names the alienation between Jews and Gentiles. He doesn't hide the history and he doesn't glide over its present hostilities. He asks us two times to remember it. We remember this because it tells us that the gospel is for outsiders, which Paul says we were, and it makes us insiders. 
And so it inscribes on the heart of the church of Jesus Christ, especially when the church is comprised principally of Gentiles. Now, in the Bible, if you weren't a Jew, you were a Gentile. So every, everybody else other than a Jew is a Gentile. So I would assume that we're primarily a Gentile church, according to Bible terms here. Paul is saying is you know what it's like to have no privilege and then to receive immeasurable privileges in the Lord Jesus Christ. God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. And so he's saying, like, I think part of what he wants us to see is that it should be you of all people that have a profound heart for anyone who's an ethnic, cultural, or spiritual outsider. The Old Testament example of this is, is Deuteronomy when it's trying to encourage the people of God to have an ethnic, an ethic of economic care for the foreigner or for the immigrant in their land. What does the author of Deuteronomy do? He, he points to when Israel themselves were in Egypt as foreigners and as immigrants and says, you once were foreigners and immigrants too. You know what it's like, and yet God redeemed you. So care for the one who's in your midst. So when millions of people flood the streets of our cities in anguish and in pain and anger because of the alienation they have experienced, and we've seen this for decades in the U.S., and I can almost guarantee that we're going to see it again some point in the future. The Church of Jesus Christ need not put up its defenses and stake its battleground, but rather ask a question. How can I help name the history and lament the grief and the pain that has caused it? And is there an aspect of the fullness of the gospel that we see in Ephesians 2 that may actually be good news for those that are in such pain? And have we done our part as the church in living out the fullness of this gospel? Or have we contributed, contributed in some way to the dynamics we see? I think that's the sort of posture that Paul encourages us as, as he asks us to remember in a lovely little book by Brenda Salter McNeil, it's called The Heart of Racial Reconciliation, How Soul Change Leads to Social Change. She opens up her first chapter asking the question, is there still a race problem? And she talks about how people can really bog down in the debate of all the details about that. But she ends at the very end of her chapter with this simple prayer, and I just want to commend it to us. She says, God, too often our hearts and our eyes have been closed to the suffering of others in our divided world. Give us eyes to see and hearts that share your heart for the unity and reconciliation of all peoples. We pray in your name. Amen. See, according to Paul, the softening of the heart, in a sense, begins with remembering. It, be it begins with naming our history and our alienation that God has overcome. And then Paul speaks a healing word. He points us to the source of healing, verses 13 through 16. But now in Christ, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. 
Notice in verse 16, that's the foundation of our liturgical passing of the peace. We almost repeat that verse verbatim. The gospel heals, Paul says, by doing two things, by breaking down walls of hostility and by building up one new humanity. And so it breaks down the walls of hostility. And here Paul's kind of referencing a fixed feature of ancient Jewish architecture in the temple. The temple was designed that you kind of had the Holy of Holies, you had the place where sacrifices were made, and, and, and there, was a priest of where, there was a place where all the Jewish priests could hang out, but nobody else could go. The laity had to stay behind. And then there was a court right behind that was, was for all the Jewish men, but the ladies had to stay behind. And then behind that was the Jewish, court, Jewish women's court. So you had Jewish priests, Jewish men, Jewish women, all in this area. And then you had a couple stairs and a big dividing wall that you had to walk through. And then you had about 14 stairs down, so a big flight of stairs, until you reached the court of the Gentiles, which surrounded the whole entire temple in the Jewish courts. So if you were a Gentile, you could not walk up those stairs and ascend into the presence of the holy, holy God. You had to stay back and allow others to do that. And yet you could always have this visual of the temple right before you. You could always see where you could never go. Paul says that this dividing wall has been torn down by Jesus Christ. And the dividing wall was not simply a peaceful instrument of, of boundaries between people groups. This had become something that symbolized deep-seated racism and nationalism. That's why Jesus, when he went to the temple and turned over all the tables and, and sent out all the merchants and was cleansing the temple, he said, behold, this is my house, and it is meant to be a house of prayer. And he doesn't just stop there. He says, for all the nations. So that has been torn down. And then in its place, it says, God in Christ is building one new humanity. And there are two words for new in the Greek language. There's neos and there's kainos. Neos is new with respect to time, but kainos is new with respect with kind. So neos, for example, is the latest model of the Ford F-150, or it's the latest kind of like fighter jet F-18, or it's the latest iPhone 13, 14, 15. What number are we on right now? Anybody know? Okay, 13. I'm going with 13. So that's Neos, the newest model of something. But Kainos is the Model T4. It's, it's the Wright brothers creating the first airplane. It's, it's the first smartphone ever invented. So Kainos is new with respect to kind. It means something that the world has never seen before. And Paul uses that word here. He's saying the gospel of Jesus Christ brings people together in such a way that when someone walks into the church, they should see something that the world has never seen before. Like people that don't think alike and don't act alike and don't eat alike and don't feel alike and don't vote alike and don't speak alike together. Doing life together, weeping and rejoicing together, serving and worshiping together. And Paul's very clear. It's not some political agenda or intellectual idea or racial identity that is the source of unity for this people. It is Jesus Christ himself. He is our peace. There's something about a person, the person of Jesus, that can unite us amidst our divisions in a way that's profoundly personal. 
I think this is one of the beautiful themes that arises for me in, in the kind of TV series, The Chosen. And this is just a, a, a shameless little plug that you should sign up for this this fall. But Jesus' followers are this diverse group of people. And one of the things that everybody that's an outsider of that group is amazed by is like, why in the world is this diverse group of people interacting with each other? You have like zealots and political revolutionaries all the way from like tax collectors that were like in cahoots with the political powers of B, all the way from people that were like poor and uneducated and couldn't read to those that were like incredibly educated and wealthy and had access to a ton of books, to those of different kind of ethnicities and genders, and you name it, and all these people are together. And one of the things that keeps happening is they keep coming to head. They keep not liking each other. <laughs> so they get in these arguments all the time, and they're frustrated with one another, and they yell at each other, and they posture, and they, and they try to one-up each other all the time, and yet they stick with each other. And throughout the narrative, the one thread that just holds them all together is each one of them has been touched by Jesus in some way. Each one of them has experienced his healing grace in some way. Each one of them cannot deny the magnetic force of his life and his goodness in some way. That's what the church is intended to be. And so that's how, in part, Ephesians 2 is good news for those who wonder if there's anything redemptive that the gospel says to our racial tensions. But how is Ephesians 2 good news for those who have been working for racial reconciliation and justice and unity, but have become disheartened and disillusioned? Do you know anybody like that? <laughs> because some ethnic minorities and people of color have become tired of superficial relationships that don't lead to much social change. And some have even despaired, not wanting to engage in the work of reconciliation anymore until they have proof that there's going to be more than just warm feelings and pious platitudes. Uh, an interesting account of this is, um, is Edward Gilbreth wrote this book called Reconciliation Blues. And he said, there are some of us that just have reconciliation blues because our hearts have been disappointed so many times. And I think to people that are in their pl that place, there is a hopeful word. And it's Jesus is your peace. He has made peace. Not that all the alienation and discrimination is all sudden gone, but in the end, it means that it's impotent. It has a definitive shelf life, and it will have a final expiration date. It will die, quite literally. Ephesians 2 says that this is God's work, this work of reconciliation before it was ever ours and in the midst of it being ours and after it is ours. And that God is pleased to dwell with his people even when they are in the unfinished business of being conformed into the image of Christ and sharing his vision for the world. Verses 19 and 22, Paul says, you are no longer foreigners and strangers. No, he went from exclusion now to embrace. But fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling place in which God lives by his spirit.
I think one of the encouraging things this passage tells us is that God's work of reconciliation precedes and it undergirds and it outlasts all human acts of reconciliation. He is in it for a long haul in the way that we just can't be because we're finite creatures, in a way that we cannot see because we're finite creatures. We're, we're to believe that this is God's project before it was ever our project and that he is going to see it to completion and that God is committed to building his multi-ethnic church. For the multi-ethnic church, Paul seems to think, as he'll go on in chapter 3, you'll discover next week, is one of the most profound apologetics to the veracity of the gospel in a divided world. If God is committed to it, then in the end, no one's going to thwart it. And God is pleased to dwell with his people even when they are in the valley of the shadow of death. Even when they're in pain and disillusionment over continued division. You see, God is not absent when the church is sinful and prideful and segregated. Yes, God grieves. Yes, God calls to account. But God still chooses to be right there in the midst of his people in the midst of their brokenness, in holiness, and in love, in judgment, and in grace. His unholy people, he says, are his holy temple, his dwelling place. You see, I think it was this that was the great hope that produced some of the classic spirituals in the African-American church tradition. They sang of a painful yet confident hope that was the hope of the gospel of Ephesians 2. Soon it will be done, says one spiritual. The trouble of the world, the trouble of the world. Soon it will be done, going home to live with God. No more weeping and wailing, no more weeping and wailing, going home to live with God. Soon it will be done. The trouble of the world, the trouble of the world, the trouble of this world, O oh Lord. May it be so, Lord. May it be so. Amen.